Hi everybody, this is Ray Otis and you're listening to Plundergrounds. I have a couple of great call-ins this week and they're going to drive the whole episode. We'll get to them shortly, but first I wanted to clear up a couple of points regarding last week's podcast on Dungeon World Moves. In talking about moves as a social contract, I got caught up in talking about the 10 plus result more than I meant to. What I really wanted to do was hit the point hard that the GM should not rob a player of success on a 7 to 9. I remember saying that when people refer to a 7 to 9 as a mixed success, that's incorrect. What I really meant to say there is that when they refer to it as a partial success, it's incorrect. I still don't love the term mixed success, but that's probably an okay label. Um, I've heard the results called a hit, a split, and a miss, too, and that's not bad. The point is uh, that the 7 to 9 is a character success, followed by a GM move. Those are two unrelated events. The GM move shouldn't, should not, negate the character success. It may temper the success in the mind of the player, but you have to remember that it is summarizing a whole exchange of events. In D&D, those two events, uh, the character success and the GM move, would be separate, um, would happen on separate turns. One would happen on the player's turn and one on the GM's turn, at least in a, in a combat situation, which is kind of how we were breaking things down. In Dungeon World, those two things happen virtually simultaneously. One way of thinking about it is, if you win the race but twist your ankle, you still won the race. <laughs> so while that may feel like less than a perfect victory, it still is a success. The other thing I wanted to clear up has to do with pacing. You may recall that I divided the results of a combat exchange in D&D into four boxes based on the PC and an opponent hitting and missing, hitting or missing. You have one box to represent when both hit, one to show that the PC hits and the monster misses, one for when the monster hits and the PC misses, and one to indicate that both missed. Those first three boxes are covered by Dungeon World dice results. Both hitting is a 7 to 9, so that's an exchange um, of hits. A PC hit with no monster hit is a 10 plus, and a monster hit with no PC hit is a 6 minus. But the thing you may have caught on to is that I missed talking about the fourth box altogether. And that's because Dungeon World, I think, intentionally ignores that box where both uh, the PC and the monster miss. I I suppose it comes close when both the PC and the monster hit, but the damage rolls are negated by armor. But generally, that kind of status quo where two combatants miss each other or where the fiction remains the same for whatever reason after a move just doesn't happen in Dungeon World. The game is built to drive fiction forward. You're never left with the same situation after a roll, or, or you shouldn't be. It should be a very rare event where things feel the same after a move. Finally... When I talked about conflating rolls, I mentioned damage rolls, which was just outright incorrect. I um, got carried away, I think. Damage rolls are separate in Dungeon World 2. They kind of feel like they're rolled into the move, but they aren't. They Those are a separate roll. Anyway, enough about Dungeon World moves. Let's get to this week's call-ins. Hi, Ray. It's Colin Green, Spike Pit here. Uh, really interested in your Dungeon World episode. Um, it makes a bit of a change for me to hear someone else talking about Dungeon World, I normally only uh, listen to Discern Realities and I haven't listened to that for some time, but I did used to kind of enjoy it. Uh, I've got a copy of the rules, I've, I've read them and everything, but I couldn't get any, couldn't really get any players. 
I'd be interested to know what turned you on to Dungeon World yourself. What what was it that inspired you to get into the game? And maybe, you know, what is it that prompted you to start up your Plunderground zine and make it for Dungeon World? Anyway, excellent podcast. Catch you later. Hey, it's Talon from the Audio Dungeon Discord. Just got done listening to your uh, Dungeon World uh, based podcast, and I think that you don't really have to separate OSR from Dungeon World. And in fact, I kind of want to bring Dungeon World stuff to my Dungeon Crawl Classics game. Uh, for example, lately I've been trying to get players to paint the scene or. Uh, I, I try to ask people leading questions to uh, build a, their own custom adventure and uh, rewarding fleeting luck for their answers. Uh, what are your thoughts on adding Dungeon World stuff to OSR games? So, thanks. Thank you, Colin and Talon. I really love the questions I got this week because they give me a chance to talk about some things that get me really excited. I played the calls back-to-back because my answers are going to get a little mixed up together. Um, in fact, I've got a lot to say, and I may jump around a little, uh, but I'll try to keep things as clear as possible. First, let me address Talon's question about distinctions between OSR and Dungeon World. Um, absolutely, Talon, I couldn't agree with you more. There really isn't a lot of purpose to making... Uh, any kind of wall between the two. For one thing, I personally play a lot of both. This year has been kind of an OSR year for me. I've run more Dungeon Crawl Classics than Dungeon World, and I've played almost every iteration of D&D in 2018, including a Zero E game that was run from the Little White Books and an AD&D Dungeon Crawl where the Dungeon Master handed me a vintage Goldenrod character sheet on which to to uh, record my character, and uh, and I actually um, recreated my very first D and D character, A Rod Shadowfoot, um, a thief with a bastard sword. <laughs> anyway, uh, I jump back and forth between story and OSR games all the time, and I, I often migrate techniques just kind of naturally from one to the other without a lot of thought. Um, And I think there are some games, for instance, that just fall kind of sweetly in the middle. Uh, The Black Hack, for me, is a good example. It's an OSR derivative, but it plays a lot like Dungeon World, or at least it does when I run it. So I don't really find OSR and indie story games to be very useful terms. And even worse, they're often used destructively to drive wedges and create tribes within the hobby. The truth is that OSR and indie story games do have more in common with each other than either has in common with corporately created and produced games. Of course, there are differences too, but I think the biggest point of common ground is that uh, games in both the OSR and story camps are typically created by an individual or a very small group of individuals and produced in small print runs which means that they aren't typically economically viable, (laughs) meaning the creators aren't going to make a living off of them, so they're not doing it for the money primarily. Uh, They may look at money as one measure of a success. You know, if a game is financially uh, in the black, that's a measure of success, certainly, Um, but uh, it's not 
it's, it's not what they're going for. It's not why they create. In fact, I think most of the reason they create is just out of a need to create. It's certainly the reason I write Plundergrounds. I just enjoy writing and making things and making up stuff and the craft of disappearing into to writing and drawing. So I think they do it out of a need to create and to create something different or better, at least in their own estimation, something unique, something that reflects their personal vision. As a result, the games are driven by a focused creative vision that simply makes them more interesting to me than designs that are blended. I'll refer to the first kind of game as a hobby game and the second as an industry game a lot. That's a kind of a distinction I make. Respectively, I look at them a bit like single malt scotches and blended whiskeys, if you understand that reference. Industry games tend to have all the quirks, regional characteristics, individual voices, all polished off of them. So they have more mass appeal, but their blends risk being bland and basically indistinguishable from one another, other than, you know, trappings. In contrast, I feel like hobby games, single malt games, if you will, retain their distinct flavor. That makes them more polarizing, because not every palate will appreciate every hobby game, but when you find one that fits your tastes, it's practically a religious experience. (laughs) Oh, man, I'm getting thirsty, so let me get back on track. One thing I will say straight up is that reading and running Dungeon World using the agenda and principles made me a better GM. The idea is there, um, they're probably not things that I wasn't already doing on some level, and they're not always new ideas. Many of them come from a long history of GMs thinking about what they're doing that's successful at the table. But uh, those principles really brought an awareness to me. And by bringing an awareness and giving me simple, straightforward maxims to hold on to and mechanics that support them in the game, I was able to, I believe, improve on all of those techniques uh, that a GM could employ to um, encourage character engagement and make sure everybody's having a good time and really just make the play experience better. Talon, you mentioned painting the scene as an example of a Dungeon World technique uh, that you added to your Dungeon Crawl Classics games. Of course, painting the scene isn't really a a Dungeon World technique exclusively, uh, but Dungeon World does push you to take care of the fiction, as I mentioned last week. And you're right, that's obviously a useful um, system agnostic piece of advice. And in fact, I think probably about 90% of Dungeon World is portable technology. So Let's talk about drifting some more Dungeon World tech into OSR games and and pick a couple specific examples. I could think of two examples right off the top of my head. And the the first is the Dungeon World principle of ask questions and use answers. I usually surround that one with two other principles because I think they're all related. And those are draw maps, leave blanks, and address the characters, not the players. So you'll hear a little bit of both of those come in come into this discussion too, but I I really want to focus on ask questions and use the answers. One of the reasons I love running Dungeon World is that I really love emergent fiction, and not to put too fine a point on it, but I'm pretty lazy and not very creative, at least in my own estimation. I I don't know if I really am lazy and dumb, but I often think of myself that way. Um, And I think I'm sort of willingly so, uh, willfully so, in certain parts of uh, the gaming hobby. When I prep for a game, I leave lots of blank spaces uh, because I'm counting on player input. I want player input. 
I love it when a player adds something unexpected to the fiction. I like the surprise factor of it. I like that it gives the player something in the world that's theirs, um, increasing their investment in the shared fiction. And I love having that seed there that I can riff off of and expand. And, and it adds more depth and richness and layers and uh, intelligent inconsistency to the fictional world than I would have gotten if I'd have just um, you know, brought it all out of my own head or tried to. In fact, I want to take a little sidebar here and talk about shared fiction before I get too focused on questions. I'm a visual person, so if you don't mind, I'm going to give you kind of a virtual whiteboard talk. Um, you may want to get out a piece of scratch paper, but I think you can probably do this in your head. You've seen a Venn diagram before, whether you knew that's what it was called or not, I'm sure. They look like two big circles uh, that partially overlap, each circle representing some kind of concept or thing. And inside the circle are usually just kind of floating around words that represent traits of that idea. And then in the overlapping portion are the traits that both ideas have in common. We're going to draw a little more complicated Venn diagram. I want you to imagine, first of all, that you're looking down on a round table, and that round table is where people are playing a role-playing game. So you can, on that, you draw in your mind a circle that represents that table, and then around the, the perimeter of that circle, you can make some dots that represent players. So you can think of maybe five dots around that table. And then I want you to draw a circle around each of those dots big enough so that they um, all you know, reach the center of the table or a little further in. And what you're going to have is a kind of weird-looking flower. <laughs> you know, the table is the shared fiction, and the petals, if you will, are the individual fictions. So this is related to the idea that communication is by nature imperfect. When I say something to you, what I say and what you hear aren't the same thing whether it's because of distractions in the environment, whether it's because we lack a shared vocabulary, maybe I use a word uh, differently than you would use it or I use a word that you don't know, or sometimes it's just our different backgrounds and experiences that cause the discrepancy. Let me give you an idea to drive home that point um, that's related to role-playing games, uh, specifically fantasy role-playing games. If I say the word goblin, you and I feel like we understand each other. A goblin is a fairly common fantasy element. But you may be thinking of Warhammer goblins. Green, gross, grotesque. And I might be thinking of Harry Potter goblins. Miserly, untrustworthy, wearing business suits. And somebody else at the table might be thinking of labyrinth goblins. And so on. The cool thing is that each person at the table can be right and not necessarily get in the way of the shared fiction. Each person can have their own best version of the story, the one that is particularly suited to their tastes. And they can own those ideas, the ones that only they have, and they can have ideas that are shared you know, with others. And as long as those aren't in conflict, as long as there's no tension between their um, head fiction and the table fiction, the shared fiction, it's going to be a good game. In fact, I think the best gaming experiences aren't the ones where there's the most overlap, but the ones where there's the least amount of tension between that interior fiction and the shared fiction. But we're getting a little deep. <laughs> Let me rein it back in and start talking about questions again. I mentioned that I like to come to the table with cheesecloth, <laughs> you know, with just um, a few ideas barely held together with some threads and then kind of expect 
um, or hope or am prepared to evoke responses from players to help fill in that network. I want to bring just enough to get people excited about what's going on, but not so much that every chamber pot, chair, and spittoon in the inn is nailed to the floor. And in fact, that's one reason I don't usually play with battle mats and miniatures, but that's a subject for a different podcast. Since I know I'm bringing this loose cluster of barely held together ideas, I'm constantly thinking about questions that I can ask that give players input into the fiction. Uh, Since I'm counting on them to fill those gaps, I want to be ready to help them fill those gaps in a way that's not awkward. Um, I want it to be natural, and I want as much as possible to ask the questions in a way that lets the players stay in character. In other words, I try to ask them things that the character could or would know, and I address the questions to the character. Sometimes I use the character name, sometimes I use the character's class, but I want to get them thinking in character and filling in pieces of the world as their character. So here's an example of a question that I have asked before. Druid, in your homeland you have a hideaway where you go to recharge. What does your home look like? What's it made of? And what dwells in it with you? Now, that's a question I've thought about a good deal and have tweaked over time. For instance, I don't ask who dwells in it with you, because I'm hoping the druid player uh, might name some animals that he or she can bring into play later through shape-shifting. And I say dwells rather than lives, because I once had a player say that the thing living in the house with him was the ancestral spirits of the sylvan elves. So I want to maybe hint that the thing that lives in the home can be strange, uh, maybe not alive in the traditional sense. Now, I could come up with that home for the druid. I could say, uh, druid, back in your swamp home, you have a a hut made of woven reeds and mud, and it's filled with um, toads and newts and snakes. But what I I would just be doing is be uh, rebuilding Yoda's hut, I think, in my head, because that's uh, a reference, you know, that's my reference. But um, what would be the point of me building that hut for the druid? By telling them what their home looks like, I've stolen that opportunity from the player to make the world their own, to find a place where they feel at home in it, to know there is a place there that they can vividly imagine that comes right out of their own, you know, storehouse of ideas. I I like asking questions like that that help players fill in their backstory. In fact, I don't like players to fill in too much backstory ahead of the time. You know, leave your story for the table, right? Don't try to tell your story before you get to the table. Don't start the game too early. (laughs) I have a list of what I call establishing questions by character class in issue two of Plundergrounds, if you want to see more, like the one I just mentioned for the Druid. Issue two of Plundergrounds is about the lost dwarven city of Kazarak. It's a kind of, in some ways, a post-apocalyptic fantasy because it's um, after the fall of a dwarven civilization and it's the ruins of their city and what has uh, creeped into it and possibly a mystery about how that happened, why they fled to begin with. So if you're interested in seeing more questions uh, like that, then uh, pick up issue two of Plundergrounds. Another bit of dungeon world tech that I'm trying to drift into OSR games these days is the way monsters are built. Um, In an OSR game, all you really need are a handful of stats to make up a monster on the fly. It's fairly easy, and particularly something like BX. I mean, you have a concept, and you use that concept to come up with the creature's hit points, armor class, damage, 
then I suppose you might want an initiative number, maybe a morale number. Um, if saves come up, you just use the chart by hit dice or uh, creature type. Even easier, uh, maybe you start with your concept and just find a, a monster already in the book and that is a, a close analog to your monster and just tweak a few things. Dungeon World is much the same, uh, but there are two additional pieces of tech that make the difference for me, and that is the instinct and creature moves. The best way to explain those two things is to just build a monster. Uh, there's a way to do it, uh, building a monster that's described in the Dungeon World book that I don't like a whole lot. It's too procedural for me, takes too much time. So here's how I build a monster for Dungeon World, and we'll just kind of do one on the fly here. Um, I start with a concept. I usually just start with a cool name. <laughs> um, let's 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 do a uh, let's do a hive queen, uh, a giant ant, or uh, maybe a let's, no. Let's do a giant. Let's do a giant wasp, uh, uh, the queen of a big uh, waxy paper hive dungeon thing. Um, it helps me to visualize the creature first, so that I'm seeing it in my head, because uh, then I think everything will flow from, if you have a clear idea of the monster, everything's going to flow naturally from that. Uh, so let's see, I'm seeing something the size of a pony, something pretty large, maybe even a horse, uh, with wings, of course, because uh, it's wasp-like and an exoskeleton. Not like a beetle's exoskeleton, but certainly um, glossy, uh, thick, you know, overlapping skin, pieces of, of uh, external um, skeleton. And I think it has bright patterns on it as a warning, but I don't want to go with the traditional black and yellow, so uh, let's keep the yellow. That's a nice garish color. Um, also, yellow has a, a classical association with madness and um, insanity and um, decadence that I kind of like. So, uh, like, you know, if you think of uh, stories like the yellow wallpaper or the king in yellow, so let's keep the yellow, but let's shift the black um, that we would typically think of in a wasp's uh, coloration to, um, to an iridescent blue. Um, an iridescent blue and a yellow, and I, that'd be great. Those two colors are going to kind of fight each other and be really wild. Um, and of course, it has those rainbow compound eyes that are both beautiful and gross at the same time. And um, it has a, a mouth... Um, I think its mouth is going to be, I want it to be a human enough that it could actually talk, so that's going to be kind of creepy, and we'll have like kind of a human-ish mouth, um, maybe lipless though, with um, mandibles on either side, and uh, each arm uh, we'll imagine as, as having kind of a double hooked scythe at the end of the, uh, you know, as the foot, um, a little bit like those antique ice tongs. I don't know if you've ever seen those where, um, big cast iron, they look, uh, they're formed like scissors, but instead of having blades, they have, um, you know, um, scythe like, um, they're not bladed, but they have, uh, you know, that's a gripper, right? They just have pointed ends. And so you, uh, put it down over a big block of ice. And then as you pick up it, the tension grabs the ice. Um, I'm getting a little off track here. So um, it's a wasp, and um, uh, I guess I'm seeing a sting too then. So the stats are going to take care of themselves. Uh, I'll give it armor like scale mail for the exoskeleton, and then I'm going to give it hit points in the neighborhood of a lion or a bear, um, and weapon damage like a scythe. If there's a scythe-like weapon, um, I'll just go with that, like short sword maybe for those hook 
ends of their arms, and, and probably they have some piercing qualities. So that's good enough for the bite and the sting, um, except the sting um, has a poisonous tag, of course. Oh, and it has the, the wings tag um, because it has wings. <laughs> but what us see. What I really want to know, and this is where we get into the Dungeon World territory. I mean, everything up to this point has been basically how I would build a creature for for BX as well. Um, but what I really want to know um, for Dungeon World purposes is, what does this monster want? What is its instinct? So, let's see. It's a queen of a hive. And I think its number one concern then is going to be the survival of the hive. And uh, probably all the drones and soldiers are nameless, expendable things. Um, so that's not really the hive. The hive continuance is really um, based on, let's say, the next generation, the, the eggs. The eggs are the hive. So um, let's give her the instinct, protect the eggs at all cost. Uh, that gives a nice ring to it to say at all cost because that um, now now we have a drive for her. So if, if nothing else, we know that her number one aim is to protect the eggs, protect the eggs at all costs. She'll do anything. She'll spend any resource to protect those eggs. Um, there's the highest moral calling she has is to protect those eggs. So um, she'll do immoral things to protect those eggs, or what we would think of as immoral things, what humans would think of as immoral things, perhaps, uh, because that's a lower edict than protecting the eggs. Now I want some moves, and here's the thing about creature moves. Some of you have read my little essay on making monster moves that matter in the free Plundered Pages issue of Plundergrounds. Uh, I think it first came out uh, right after I wrote issue three, The Horde. Um, but I've collected all those kind of extra bits into one volume that I released earlier this year for free. So I'll put the appropriate links in the show notes where you can get that. But those of you who read that already know what I think about monster moves. I don't believe that you need to write moves that echo the creature's attacks. Uh, those moves are already implicit in the attacks, damage, and tags. So if I write claw best 2d8, which is a damage category. Um, it's the best of 2d8 dice if you're not familiar with uh, Dungeon World, but I guess that's probably pretty clear. If I write claw best 2d8, uh, messy and forceful, and I write sting d6 piercing one poisonous, I don't need to write the moves. I've already Those are implicitly the moves, rend them with a claw or inject them with poison. So writing those moves down, I could do that. But what it just ends up doing is making noise on the page that I have to look past. When I'm running a game and I need something quick, I don't want to look down and see rend them with a claw because I've already seen um, claw best 2d8 messy and forceful, which actually is a better is a better move because it tells me more about the attack than rend them with a claw. I like making moves that are not uh, repetitive of things that are already in that stat block. And not all moves should be combat-focused anyway, um, I think. Sometimes people get a little caught up in making combat moves. I usually try to give two or three moves minimum. Three to four seems like the sweet spot. Uh, when you start getting into the range of five moves, that's really for a creature that's a showpiece, like a boss monster. Um, it gets a little too hard to work with on the fly. So five moves is for something that's really vivid in your imagination and for a combat or interaction that might take a long time and you might need those extra moves. Let's make one move that's kind of a surprise form of attack. I like to do that to make sure that combats don't fall into the grind of hit point attrition. 
and um, I like to make at least one move that's social, so let's make a social move in case the characters interact with the queen on a more civil level. And uh, we'll do a third one afterwards. Let's, let's get the first two done, and then we'll figure out what we need for the third one. She's a hive queen. Um, I imagine there's a kind of hive mind thing going on, because that's always cool. Um, so maybe she's psionic. Um, she's got to have a way anyway to communicate and sustain the hive mind. And she's regal. She has a kind of glamour. Let's, uh, let's make it more chemical than psionic. Let's make it about pheromones. A way to influence people's minds with pheromones. Maybe enrage or arouse or cause fear. Um, but uh, it, it makes more sense to leave that open and flexible. Uh, let's say bend them to her will with pheromones, or maybe just bend their thoughts with pheromones. So it's less of a mind-to-mind -mind command and, and more of a way of influencing them more subtly. Yeah, not, it's not a logical thing. In fact, it's, it's uh, more visceral, so let's, so let's make the move bend their emotions with pheromones. That could really play havoc with characters who um, miss their defy danger role in a combat encounter. And I guess I would probably target charisma or wisdom, not constitution, with that defy danger move. Because I want the characters to feel the emotion regardless and have to fight not to give into it. And I think that would be awesome if they are still under the influence of her glamour but have shrugged it off as a, as a mind-controlling thing and are still feeling that as they press the attack and maybe even kill her. I think that would make them really conflicted in a cool way. Uh, but moving on. <laughs> a pun, moving on. Next, uh, something social. I think the queen is all business, so let's make it kind of a trade thing. And uh, what resources would a hive have? Honey, maybe, or, uh, well, I'm kind of mixing wasps and bees here, but, you know, this is fantasy, so give it to me. Uh, uh, royal jelly. Let's, she has royal jelly that she'll trade for, what, favors, safety? I'm guessing uh, the jelly probably has magical properties, so let's make the move. Trade them priceless royal jelly for what she most, well, that's really wordy, for what she most needs. That's too wordy. Um, trade them magic royal jelly. We, we could just stop right there and leave it open because obviously she's going to trade for something she wants or need. Um, I suppose we could say trade them royal jelly for their cooperation, but again, that's wordier than it needs to be. Um, so let's just go with the short one. And I like that move because it means adventurers could end up leaving with the treasure um, without a combat or without you know killing the queen. <laughs> um, since it's a magic item, maybe using the jelly has something um, adverse about it. It has some mutating effects, too, maybe. That, that could be fun. Um, okay, so we have bend their emotions with pheromones and trade magic jelly. Those are our two moves to start with. And we could stop there, but I'm starting to like this creature. And I'm kind of changing my mind about her size. Um, I want her to be larger than life, but not horse-sized and uh, more humanoid. I'm starting to think about uh, Kate Blanchett's character in Thor Ragnarok or the Borg Queen in, uh, was that Star Trek Nemesis? I think it was. Um, except I want her to be like seven foot tall. And I want to give her a chance to get away so that she can be a thorn in the character's sides later. So she, she does have wings. Uh, the move could be fly away with a handful of eggs, which plays nicely into her instinct. Or maybe maybe I won't specify flying and just say slip away with a handful of eggs. Um, yeah, let's just go with that. 
Um, and what I like about creature moves in general is that they're bullet points. So here we have three bullet points. Uh, bend their emotions with pheromones, trade magic, royal jelly, and slip away with a handful of eggs. That is so manageable at the table. Just that format alone is something that should find its way into the OSR. When you have time to prep ahead of time, that's one thing. But I like to run pretty loose, and I often bring in a creature in the middle of a scene that I just hadn't planned to have there before. So I don't have time to stop and read three paragraphs of ecology and tactics and social organization. I actually prefer OSR texts that just don't bother writing up much of a description because then I can make it up and I don't feel um, the, uh, compelled to, to look into that paragraph to find something that I can use. Uh, but a few bullet point moves is even better. That's an awesome uh, form of guidance. I can look down and just see those moves and think, you know, okay, I'm getting a little bored with her just uh, doing damage. What could I do instead of doing damage? And it's right there. You know, slip away with a handful of eggs or um, trade them royal jelly. So she'll maybe in the middle of a combat call for, you know, a, a pause and try to try to trade her way out of the situation. I think at this point, the only thing I haven't explicitly addressed from the call-ins is Colin's question about how I ended up settling on Dungeon World and began to write Plunder Grounds. And here's something that may surprise you. The first time I played Dungeon World, I didn't like it. I was at Gen Con probably 2013, and I was playing at Games on Demand when they were in a small room on the second level near the exhibit floor, and that was my first time at playing at Games on Demand. Uh, the GM that was at my table was still trying to tie up another game that had run long, so he kind of threw the playbooks at us um, and, you know, let us have time to choose from them, which was fine, um, and walked away to finish up that other game. Uh, I ended up grabbing the Bard character sheet, and you may be thinking that that's why I had a bad time, <laughs> but I, I don't think that was it. Um... I think the Bard is just fine. I had never played a Powered by the Apocalypse game before. Uh, I had read a little Dungeon World from early versions of it, uh, but I didn't get it, not really. Um, so when the GM came back, he jumped us right into a little three-room dungeon. That was pretty cool. Uh, and the whole adventure was over in like 60 minutes. Uh, but here's the thing. While he was away, I had studied the moves on my playbook and I didn't really think about or glom on to the idea that there was a sheet of basic moves in the middle of the table. I'm sure the GM told me there was basic moves in the middle of the table, um, but I was kind of stuck in this mindset back then that everything I could do was spelled out on my character sheet, and I think a lot of players come from that tradition. So, uh, you know, this was not too long after the, um, it might even been during the heyday of uh, 3rd edition. It was probably after uh, so instead of thinking fiction first and just doing bard stuff, I was trying to constantly use one of the moves off my sheet, um, and they rarely fit the situation. And I, I thought of those uh, basic moves that as kind of fallback, uh, you know, like if you can't do something cool, do one of those. And, and I just don't think it was explained to me the right way or explained to me at all. Um, and I don't want to put that all on the GM, but honestly, I think if the GM had just said, do bard stuff, you're a bard, you're a good one. Uh, tell me cool bard stuff you do, and we'll figure out what moves, what move it is when it matters. I think that would have done it for me. 
As it was, I left the game with the impression that it was really limited, um, that it limited you to just a few options. I thought the only thing you could do was on your playbook and that it was a pared down, actually dumbed down version of D&D, which it totally isn't. A few months later, I started looking into Dungeon World again, and I honestly don't remember what the turning point was. I think I had always been attracted to the game because the language was good and I had heard other people talk excitedly about it. Um, And I started thinking about it a lot. It might have been a podcast episode or a conversation with a friend. I know Rich Rogers mentioned it to me um, at one point around then. Rich Rogers does the Plus One podcast right now, and he, he, he has done several podcasts over the years and does tons of online gaming with the Gauntlet crew. I don't know, but something clicked in my brain and I, uh, at that time, and I started running it for my kids and at conventions, and I just really couldn't get enough of it back then. Uh, and, and even today, can't get enough of it. <laughs> and... Uh, I had started looking into Marshall Miller's Dungeon Starters, and those clicked for me in a way that fronts didn't, because, let's face it, the description of how to build a front in the Dungeon World book is a mess. Um, It's inaccurate in some of its terminology, and the only clear thing, I think, in that chapter really is the example sheet that they give. So I, I don't think fronts are presented well in Dungeon World, and in any case, fronts aren't really the way I tend to build dungeon world threats. Um, I do do dangers, but I don't really have that. Uh, I suppose I have a loose idea that's that's a bit like a constellation of fronts uh, or a constellation of dangers, which make up a front, but I don't go through that formal process of making a front. And the first starter I created was a Sinister Solstice, which I put out in November of 2015 as a holiday game. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, a lot dark. Um, pretty cool, actually. I still look back at that and think it's a, it's a pretty neat little starter. Um, and I've played it a number of times. And that was well-received. So I started writing more starters and collecting them in a book that I was going to offer called Points Unplotted, which is a terrible name, but it was related to the Draw Maps Leave Blanks principle. And they were just so much fun to write that I, um, you know, wrote seven or eight of them without even a pause, hardly. There's a a fiction author I like, Donald Westlake, and he wrote under a lot of pseudonyms, uh, pen names. And um, he he wrote a series, there's two series that I really like. One's called Dortmunder, which is kind of a humorous heist uh, series. And then there's another one, much more dark, um, sinister, heisty series that uh, uh, has the character name of Parker. And uh, Donald Westlake wrote Parker under the name Richard Stark. And somebody asked him once why he used so many pen names. And he said, well, when you first start writing, it's like sex. You want to do it all the time. And he was afraid that people would get tired of of seeing his name or think he was uh, not giving attention to each book because he wrote so many books. So he wrote under a lot of pen names. And I felt that way about writing Dungeon World starters. Once I got into them, um, you know, I just kept wanting to do more and more. And then I'd keep revisiting the old ones and layering new ideas on top of them. And uh, it was about this time that I caught the zine bug as well. And I think it was because I was looking at the cool scene going on around Dungeon Crawl classics. Um, crawl, Crawling Under a Broken Moon, Crawl Jammer, um, and you know seven, eight other zines with the word crawl in their title. Uh, <laughs> they were all so cool. They are sweaty and edgy and um, you know frenetic in, in the best sort of way. Uh, I love zines for that reason. In fact, uh, I sometimes hate my own zines because I feel like they're too polished. I, I, um, I love the work of James West, for instance. Uh, if you've ever seen his Black Pudding, uh, a lot of his stuff is hand-drawn right down to the words on the page, and they don't... Uh, it's so... Um, 
It has kind of a, a, a beat poet vibe to it if you're a literary person. Anyway, I don't want to get too far down that line. That's another podcast. So I taught myself some uh, zine skills and learned how to make zines, uh, and I reformatted my first starter, Ape City, as Plundergrounds Issue 1. And I gave that away for free for a while to gain some interest and started my Patreon. And uh, I've been at it for over a year now. (laughs) I'm putting together um, issues numbered 7 and 8, but I've put out two bonus issues too. So I really completed 8 Plundergrounds at this point, and I'm working on 9 and 10. Um, The issues tend to run from 24 to 36 pages generally. And um, it was earlier this year that I made my first dollar off of them uh, after a whole year. I think uh, the most I was ever in the red uh, was around $400 at one point. But that's because I intentionally paid decent prices for art and um, because it took a while to build up my Patreon. But my goal is, and always was, to put the zine out without losing money. Uh, I don't want to pay myself for my own art or time. I mean, I'd love to do that, but uh, that's not my primary goal. Um, and I suppose I could could have been in the black a lot earlier if I would have illustrated all the zines myself, but I like the variety, and I get inspired by good art. If I were always writing in response to my own art or drawing in response to my own writing, I think the ideas would have gotten really stale. I have a lot to say about how writing and art Uh, how that collaboration works, but I'll save that for another day. Um, I'll just say now that I really feel like the artists I use are my collaborators, and their illustrations often added or shifted the ideas, added to or shifted the ideas in the zine for me. I would often find myself writing around their illustrations in the best sort of way. And I love it when that happens. I love it in much the same way that I love it when a player um, seeds an idea at the table and shifts the fiction and we all sort of work around the idea because it's a cool idea. So I'm, I'm consistent in that regard. There's a, there's a thread here. And I'd say at this point, Colin, that Dungeon World is my favorite system, primarily because it's the one that best fits my GM style. There are other games I want to play just as much, but very few things perform as well for me at the table when I'm at the helm as Dungeon World. I would never say it's the best game to anyone. Um, The best game for you has to do with the time and place you're in and the group and how you run games, your own style. Um, So you may have a best game as a player and a a best game as a GM. But uh, for me, Dungeon World is a super fun game to play, and it's also a super fun format in which to create things. Writing monster and location moves, for for instance... um, for me, is just a real joy. Writing a move is both a creative exercise and a form of game prep in Dungeon World because you're thinking about how that move is going to affect the fiction and uh, perform at the table. I feel really free when I run Dungeon World, free to do bold things in the fiction, free to leave holes in my prep and, and know that the game will help me and other players fill in those holes on the fly free to create anything without worrying and that I'll foul up the system or the players. Um, Just free, 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 free. I love the game. (laughs) That's all I can tell you. And that's it for me, folks. I've talked long enough. This is Ray Otis signing off. You've been listening to the Plundergrounds podcast. You can leave me a 60-second voicemail through the Anchor mobile application or website, which is found at anchor.fm slash plundergrounds without the leading W's. Uh, you could also send me a recording by email to rayotis at gmail.com if 60 seconds is too limiting for you.
You can find my Patreon and subscribe to the Plunderground zine containing adventures written for Dungeon World at plundergrounds.com. I post other gaming content, including my free micro RPGs at jellysaw.com. And if you just want to talk, you can find me on Google Plus or email me at rayotis at gmail.com. The opening and closing music is You Can Use Me by Captive Portal. And until next time, look out for rust monsters! <laughs>